Welcome. You're listening to Value Add with Lars Coburn, bringing conversations and reflections that add value to your life. Well, hey, everyone. I can't be sitting and having a conversation with you, but I sat down and had a conversation with Dr. Ron Cox from Pepperdine, and we talked about his kids and raising kids. We talked about um, college students and the questions that they bring. Really meaningful stuff. It's a little slow beginning, so I hope that you stick with the podcast because I think the episode is worth listening to, the insights that um, Dr. Cox shares. As I think about uh, the most important questions about faith and about Christianity and the things that add the most value to me, I just was over and above impressed by Dr. Cox's um, just kind of poise and ability to, to succinctly express that at the end of the day, Jesus is Lord of my life, and I need to submit myself to the text. I need to read the text, and I need to love the text. And so just his heart for a close biblical study, but also really being a faithful lover of Jesus and a lover of the Bible is awesome. So as you listen to this episode where we kind of bounce all over the place in terms of understanding uh, the Bible, understanding how to express faith in a, in a tangible way, um, I hope that you'll add to your life practices that help you remind yourself uh how much you love the Bible and how uh, to place Jesus as Lord of your life. Um, Those are the things that are going to bring great value. Um, Not necessarily reading tons of books or writing a lot of papers or even doing a PhD, um, but finding practices and habits and ways uh, to fall deeper in love with the text, the Bible, and to uh, place the Lordship of Jesus as the priority in your life. Uh, So, hope you're blessed by this episode with Dr. Cox. All right, I'm uh, on Pepperdine's campus in Malibu. I'm sitting in a professor's office. Um, You're not just a professor, uh, Dr. Cox. You're uh, also part of the international programs, right? I'm the associate dean for international programs. I work with, uh, um, in that role, I work over, I look over um, academics, classes, faculty, those types of things. And we know each other a little bit in terms of some ministry context, mm-hmm. uh, and then I also know your your family. Um, so, uh, pardon my kind of just easy comfortable comfortability with you. I'm going to call you Ron if that's, that's okay. Um, of course. And uh, so, Ron, we uh, you know got to know each other because your kids are and your family is part of camps in Southern California, yeah. and. Um, so that's that's really neat, and I think it's a it's an exciting thing to say somebody who leads and teaches and is part of Pepperdine is also active in their faith walk in uh, the role of and the life of, of churches here. I, I believe you, you also served on a, on a local church ministry yeah. team too. I was uh, from um, from two thousand eleven to, uh, to two thousand fifteen or thereabouts. I was on staff with the. Um, Culver Palms Church of Christ, mm-hmm. and um, I was their associate minister, awesome. and and then I also preach once a month at the Sierra Madre Church that's of right. Christ near Pasadena. Yeah, that's right. I remember your your son talking about that because I used to live over in Monrovia, not too mm-hmm. far from Sierra Madre. Um, so it's uh, it's just neat to to sit down with you and to kind of gain some 
uh, insight and wisdom from you uh, as, as I'm kind of uh, doing some academic work myself, finishing up a master, finished up a master's degree now and, and thinking about further studies, but also you know, love and, and work in a church uh, currently as an associate minister, assistant minister kind of position. So um, what I, I'd love to just kind of help people understand your role at Pepperdine briefly. Um, so how did you come to this role and, and what is it that you do at Pepperdine? Well, I've been working at Pepperdine since 2005. Um, I am. Uh, I was a graduate student here in the 1990s in the religion program. I um, earned my Master of Divinity. My wife Shelley earned her Master of Science in Ministry. We actually started dating here. We knew each other um, from our undergraduate time in San Luis Obispo, but um, we both came here and we started dating about a year, about a half a year, a year after we um, we started the graduate programs, and. Um, and so, I, anyway, um, when uh, I was finished with my MDiv, we moved to um, Indiana and then to Michigan, but I was um, uh, hired back here in 2005 after I completed my PhD. And um, I was uh, on the religion faculty and still am. Uh, um, and then um, last August, I started as the associate dean for IP. Awesome, awesome. And... Um, so, I mean, you know, one of the things that I hear constantly from Pepperdine students is the sophomore year abroad, yeah. the study abroad programs, and just how amazing and life-changing that those experiences yeah. are. So, um, definitely blessings on that. You've lived uh, abroad with one of those programs. Mm -hmm. um, so, talk a little bit about that. I, I know your your son went to German school, and yeah. so that was pretty neat. So, we've, we've been very fortunate. One of the reasons why Shelley and I wanted to come back here in 2005 is because we had friends who had been in um, uh, back in the '80s. There were there was uh, the London program, the uh, the Florence program, and the um, but re really the Heidelberg program, which had been in you know been going on for over 50 years. Um, and we wanted to um, uh, we knew the benefit to that to um, to students. And so when we came back as a faculty family we really had our hopes set on, on being able to go abroad. So in 2010, I mean in 2009, uh, we were the faculty family for the Florence program for that school year, 2009, 2010. And then, um, and then we went to Florence again in the summer of 2014. We did a program uh, called the London Religion Program where we spent a month in London when that included a field trip to Turkey in July of 2015. And then, um, and then we were the faculty in residence for um, family, faculty family for um, Heidelberg in 2016, 2017. And it was in 2016 where Elliot, um, who at the time was 13 years old, went, um, went to German public school. We, um, we've homeschooled our kids for the most part. And, um, and we um, had asked the local German government if we could homeschool. Actually, we had a, we, uh, at the time he was a student at an independent school run by um, uh, Oak Park here in Southern mm -hmm. California. And so we had checked to see, and they were, they were willing to have him you know, Skype in once a week and, and get his curriculum and all that. So it's basically a public school, but you know, from the home. And um, we'd asked the German government if we could do that, and they said no. After thinking about it for a few weeks, they were very thoughtful and gracious, but still said no. Um, and so we, uh, 
Elliot took tutored for uh, or learned Greek German for several months and worked with a tutor, and then we put him in a la- an intensive language program uh, in southern Germany um, just before the program started, and then he enrolled in a um, in middle school and um, had a great experience. It was a um, it was uh, uh, it was a huge stretching experience for him. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were some times when we really wondered what we were doing, um, but he—I was so proud of him through that year, and um, and um, and you know it was it was hugely beneficial to him. Yeah. So as you think about um, these programs that you lead and have participated in, that your family has actually mm-hmm. you know immersed themselves in, um, what what's the hope uh, that or maybe better phrasing would be how do how do you guys set these programs up to add value to students? So like, right. what's the obviously they're taking academic credit, right. um, but it they they could take German here, right. they could um, study about medieval history here, right. they could uh, do what they normally do in their sophomore uh, general ed core right. classes here. Right. Um, but you're in very intentional, and we've, we've even talked about how they're adding new programs, like they have a mm-hmm. fairly new one in Shanghai mm-hmm. that Pepperdine has. So what's your hope as kind of the, uh, as someone who leads this program that will add yeah. value to students? Well, um, I know for a fact that they're, I mean, yes, you're right, they could do all of those things here. Um, but it's one thing to study um, Renaissance art um, uh, in a textbook or on slides through a PowerPoint in a class in Malibu. It's another thing to be able to go to the Uffizi or to the Academia and see David in Florence or go to um, or go to a cathedral and see the paintings there and have a sense of the context. So there's, there's um, in any one of our programs, there's, uh, there is a, a qualitative aspect that you can't recreate. Mm-hmm. Um, but beyond that, um, it really is about, it's a, a combination of um, the academics that I just said were, you know, it's a whole different lens when you're learning about medieval history and you're in a context where there was actually a medieval history. You know, here, medieval history is, is I mean, we'd have to go and look at Native Americans more than anything because there is right. no medieval history. But there, you know, if you're in Heidelberg or Florence or London, there's medieval history all around you. So to be able to, to, to understand and appreciate it is really huge. But beyond that, there's a, a community aspect. You're living with, oftentimes, um, almost always with faculty families, um, either individual or individual and his or her spouse and, their, and possibly their children, like in our case. Um, and, you, there's so, and you're working with a program director and with staff that it's all Pepperdine. Pepperdine owns our, our facilities. We, you know, hire our, um, our faculty there. And it's a, it's, it is an extension of Pepperdine, but it's Pepperdine in a whole different context. So we have this community, this chance to experience things, and the students have each other, especially, as kind of a touch point as they enco- encounter the larger world. But thirdly, there's an individual aspect to it that is amazing in terms of the formation that students go through by being stretched and taken outside of their comfort zone. Whether that is um, in obvious things like having to speak German at a hospital or in a context where you're, you're, you know, you're, you're sort of learning and, and encountering people in these different worlds, 
um, uh, or you know whatever situation where you're having. To, I was thinking of a hospital because I was talking with a student this morning who um, had a friend who was sick with mononucleosis, and they went to a, um, a German-speaking hospital this summer, and she was saying that um, a, a former student of mine. She was saying that she could use her German in that context, right? Mm -hmm. So that's that's building her confidence. That's that's allowing her to to do something you know without that that you can't really recreate here too much and so that's valuable for her as an individual but also being in situations where um, you don't know what to expect you don't know what the social cues are the Germans have whole different mm -hmm. you know going to a grocery store here is an entirely different experience than going to a grocery store in Germany um, here our, our grocery aisles are quite distant quite you know far apart um, there we have tons of varieties of foods and all these things. Go to your local grocery store, um, the Reve, for instance, in, um, in Heidelberg, and um, the aisles are really close. People get into your personal space. Personal space is entirely different. And just so little things like that have these impacts on creating a different perspective in students, and so they encounter the world differently. Um, and, um, and then obviously, if you think about you know, Shanghai and um, a whole, you know, uh, almost utterly different kind of culture than what you would experience in, you know, in Europe, because, you know, the United States and Europe have a great deal in common, more in common than we would with China. It's hugely um, stretching for students to be in that circumstance. Or in Buenos Aires, where um, there, that's our only homest homestay program, students are living with fa families, they're speaking Spanish, they're um, they are, um, uh, their experience there is entirely different from our other programs. Hmm. And what happens to students in that context, whether in any one of those, is they come back changed. Um, I've had the opportunity to, in the last year, to sit across the, this same table and talk with students who have been um, in these experiences and hear how it's impacted them. Sometimes they know it, sometimes they don't know it. I can see it, but they've matured, they've developed confidence. Um, my son Paul went to London um, with the London program um, in 1617, and, um, and the benefits that he received from that experience just personally in terms of his own self-awareness, the way he carries himself, the way that he is operating as a student now as a, as a senior this year, it, it's tremendous the the value that it has for students yeah so as I um, you know kind of think about your um, your role as a scholar as well um, in many ways we're trying to help uh, especially from my standpoint in adolescent ministry mm -hmm. um, but I think in churches as well we want them to see the world differently right. to be changed by an experience of God and for um, for you you spent a lot of time uh, with the text um, of my understanding and and just understanding um, Jesus in um, in the text and one of the ways that I was first introduced to this was when we were having a, an e2 event at uh, Jeff Walling kind of does these encourage and equip for yeah. local uh, Southern California ministers and elders and you came and spoke about the four Gospels and mm -hmm. um, 
and I was surprised by um, just the way that that uh, was kind of confirming some things I was struggling with myself. Mm-hmm. Like I don't want to, I think the way you talked about it was we don't want to make them all one thing. Right. We want to let them be their own witness right. to this Jesus. Because if we, uh, and I don't, I don't want to put words in your mouth because I'm paraphrasing and kind of remembering it back, but in many ways, um, we've conflated them all to say one kind of story, right. and um, that that kind of puts Jesus over here, and we don't we don't necessarily get his clear picture. And I was struck by how much our churches sometimes do do that on a myriad set of issues, on just the way that we see life. And when we get a chance through the text and through experiences to see the world differently, right. um, uh, we might call it a disorienting experience, like right. go- going shopping. You know, It seems like shopping should be similar wherever right. we are, and right. yet uh, going into the grocery store and having someone come into my personal space or not having the selection can be kind of a form of right. disorientation. Um, and academics lends itself to that so yeah. much, right? Um, and I don't know where it was for you, so let's let's dig into your personal journey um, a little bit. What was the first time you knew, and then maybe we have a little bit of similarity in since that you got a bachelor's, I believe, in business, mm-hmm. and I got a bachelor's in accounting. Yeah, my um, concentration's in accounting. Okay, so um, I don't, uh, you know, speak to that a little bit. How did you go from that to being an MDiv student at Pepperdine, um, and now, you know, someone who's done extensive academic work? Well, it's a combination of, of a few things. It's um, uh, boiled down to philosophy, uh, campus ministry, and, um, and an internship with IBM. Um, I, was, uh, I, I was at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. I thought I was going to go into corporate law, so I thought I'd get a business degree, uh, maybe focus in management or something like that, but, um, but then go on to law school. And so I started taking philosophy classes because, you know, as a first year student, I thought, well, philosophy classes will help me with the LSAT. Yeah. I, I don't even know what the LSAT is. <laughs> Didn't know then, still don't. Yeah. But I thought, you know, I'd heard that somewhere. So I was taking philosophy classes. And the thing was, I mean, I didn't mind my business classes, but my philosophy classes rocked. I mean, those were amazing. And they were asking all these questions that were really fascinating to me and happened to be very similar to the questions that were being asked um, by me and by others in our campus ministry at the mm-hmm. Central Church of Christ, um, now the Johnson Avenue Church of Christ in um, San Luis Obispo. And um, very active campus ministry, very formative for me, great community. And so I had these, sort of had these two things going on. I had the spiritual development taking place with that campus ministry. And at the same time, I had, my, I had, I had this intellectual formation that was taking place through my philosophy classes. And um, my approach to my philosophy classes, um, none of my teachers were Christian. Um, it was a state school. Several of them were atheists, maybe all of them, except for one I knew was an Eastern religions. Uh, you know, if he, that was more his religious context. Happened to have been a, a great teacher, I'm still in contact with him. Um, anyway, I could go on about that. But um, those, the fact that, that I, was, I was asking certain questions spiritually and also wrestling with them intellectually. And the philosophy program, because I sort of went in and learned their language and their methods, and I wasn't trying to just say, well, the Bible says this, but I was trying to understand what they were, you know, what Kant was saying or what 
um, Plato was saying or what, you know, um, uh, you know, these different philosophers that we were dealing with, what their perspective was, David Hume, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, I was learning how to grapple with these ideas at the same time that I was spiritually experiencing questions of meaning of life and ethics and, and morality and um, uh, ideas about God. So it was a great mixture happening. And then I did a six-month IBM internship at IBM in San Jose. Um, tremendous opportunity for me. Um, you know, if I had, uh, you know, um, if that had been the thing that really was of interest to me and I'd excelled, I could have had a career at IBM. And at that time, um, once you got working for Big Blue, as, as IBM was called, you could, you know, you could have a job for life, you know. Mm-hmm. And, um, but what I discovered was there were two, there were two tracks. There were the people who um, got these positions, sort of low-level management or, or, or just whatever kind of, you know, sort of low-level white-collar positions. They'd be in those positions and plan to be in the same spot for the rest of their lives. Had robust personal lives outside of the work, but the work was the same thing. Hmm. Great job security at the time, you know, so you just were, that's what you're going to do. You can just stay and do that and just sort of grow along that position. And then the other level, other thing I noticed was mid-level management, a real dog-eat-dog kind of environment where, you know, they were all, all the mid-level managers were, were struggling to try and climb up the ladder and advance. And um, and so I was watching these two things, and I thought neither one really appealed to me. I don't, I don't eat dogs. Um, <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I'm not really interested in that kind of ferocious atmosphere. And on the other side of that, um, I, um, I need, I, I didn't want to do the same thing for 30 years and, and, you know, it just, anyway, so when I got back, um, to school at Cal Poly, I, I chose accounting as my concentration, even already knowing that I wasn't going to be an accountant. Mm-hmm. I chose it because I liked my teachers and I liked my fellow accounting students. And I figured if I, if I enjoyed them, then that would help me out. My dad had told me I couldn't change majors. So. Um, and philosophy, I couldn't, was only a minor at that time, so I couldn't double major. Um, so I just did that, and I started looking for graduate programs. Hmm. And, um, and uh, um, long story short, somebody had recommended studying with Tom Albright, who at the time was the, um, the department or the division chair for religion here at Pepperdine. So I applied to Pepperdine's Master of Divinity program, came here, sp- spent six years studying with a number of people, some of them who are still on faculty, uh, Provost Mars, Randy Chestnut, Tim Willis, um, Ron Highfield, um, but also um, uh, really got to study with Tom Albright, who was hugely, hugely influential in my life. And Tom was the consummate, is the consummate, yeah, he's still alive, he's in his 80s, um, is the consummate um, uh, church person and scholar. I mean, he, he what he does, He's a great intellect, incredibly productive scholarship, but he's also just deeply passionate about the gospel and about the church and really inspired me. Um, my, all the faculty really inspired me at that point when I was here. So um, I sort of wanted to do that. I wanted to serve the church and I wanted to be part of the intellectual inquiries that, that propel our faith along. Our faith mm. is, you know, deeply has a has a rich tradition of intellectual inquiry um uh, and um all the way back to the very beginning so and that's what i wanted to do in fact my my research has really been about 
the origins of that kind of deep intellectual reflection on who Jesus is as it was inspired by Greek philosophy and, um, and Jewish traditions and how it came to be that when we talk about Jesus, we can talk with the, the writer of John and say that in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God and all things came into being through him and without him nothing came into being. Or the writer of Hebrews says that um, long ago in many and various ways, um, the prophet spoke, but now in these last days, God has spoken to us by his son. And he says again, um, he's, he's the heir of everything and he's also the one through whom the ages were made. You know, or even 1 Corinthians 8, 6, which says that there's one God, the Father, from whom are all things, unto whom we are, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and unto whom we are, and are, um, through whom we are, I mean. And so here we have this intriguing language mm -hmm. And so I wanted to investigate that, and especially Colossians. I I'm, have a 30-year uh, relationship with the letter of Colossians. I, I've, I've thought about it in several different ways, hope someday to, to write a book. I've been working on a book on it um, for over a decade, um, just sort of mulling over different ways to approach it and try one um, but, um, but anyway, so, that, so all of that has been, but it's also been in service to the church. You know, mm -hmm. um, when I was studying ph philosophical questions at Cal Poly, I'd turn around and I'd be leading a devotional in a campus ministry, and I'd be thinking about how these things intersected, and mm -hmm. I'm still doing that. Yeah. I, uh, I probably should consult you about my uh, call to ministry because I use Colossians 1.28, kind of a, a post to that Christ hymn where Paul says we proclaim Christ. Um, teaching and uh, admonishing everyone with all wisdom so that we can present everyone fully mature in Christ. And uh, I probably have some interpretive work to do on, on understanding that passage, but I, I love how it's been something you started with 30 years ago, and in many ways I see that in my own life, how passages um, that uh, I continually come back to right. um, bring on so much deeper meaning and uh and things so um and then like you said I, I i think there's a false um a false narrative out there that uh academics and intellectual um stuff are opposed to uh the life of the church and a love for the gospel and and the church and so um you know just i probably could have been different if uh, Professor Albright hadn't been uh, someone leading that way yeah. for you. And I think that many people um, that you're impacting are going to catch that as well. I know that it's been very obvious to me. You're um, uh, you're not a pushover when it comes to academics, and you're not um, someone who's so skeptical that you aren't actively engaged in the life of the church. And um, not that I would say that I've come across that too much, but I've definitely come across that perception yeah. that's out there yeah. for some reason. This well, uh, the stereotype of, of the tensions between intellect and faith um, really, really um, largely today are a product of the Enlightenment, mm -hmm. which um, had reason to question faith and tradition because of uh, religious wars and that, that destroyed um, huge segments of populations in Europe. And so the Enlightenment was born out of a, an effort to sort of seek a more peaceful and constructive way. But in the process, 
uh, told a story of the dark ages and of a bleak period where tradition and, and superstition controlled everything and where intellect was, was, was quashed. And, um, and, and then all of a sudden, boom, somebody turned on the light, the enlightenment. And now we have, uh, you know, now we have the intellect and we have the mind. And, you know, initially it was, na- you know, religion was, was something that you could, you know, perceive not through a collection of traditions handed down or books of scripture, but through the book of nature, right? So deism and other forms of, of rationalistic mm-hmm. uh, religion were, were prominent. You know, and then it just gradually slipped, you know, the whole idea of being religious slipped away for different reasons. Um, uh, and, but that story has continued, the battle between science and, and faith or uh, intellect and faith. And the, the, the reality is that it is a false narrative. Now, are there, are there people who are so um, uh, controlled by their faith that they can't deal with rationalistic ideas? Yes, they are. There are definitely um, uh, people who are irrational because of their faith, and there are people who are irrational because of their rationality. I mean, they they, they, they think that they are that everything can be boiled down to what you think and, and, and all of that. It's a that's a human problem, mm-hmm. um, and it's not. It's just simply not the case that faith creates that problem. Um, it's it's a it's something that happens across the board, um, but the. But the fact is, if you go back to the, the first century, second century, third century, and you look at the leaders of the church back then, you'll see that they're incredibly intellectually aware, very, very thoughtful. They're not, they're not knee-jerk, um, quote-unquote, fundamentalists who just quote scriptures, but they're really engaging ideas and wrestling with things. And that's been the story of Christianity. The medieval period is not a period of dark ages. I mean... There, you know, are, are a lot of people literate, yes, but there's also a lot of people who can, you know, who, uh, who can read and who can think. And the dawning of what we consider contemporary science takes place in the medieval mm-hmm. period. Mm-hmm. So I can go on and on about all of that. But I want to be clear that, um, that I don't think that being an intellectual and being um, an academic somehow makes me a superior Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, I tell my students in my, my New Testament in Context class that um, I always bring up a, a woman who was um, inspirational to me when I was in college. Her name was Grandma Faye. And Grandma Faye would get up at 3 o'clock in the morning. Uh, apparently, it's something old people do. I'm getting to that point, too. I get up way too darn early. But she'd get up, and she would be praying for um, people, and she would cut out um, passages of scriptures and inspirational poems, and she'd shove them in an envelope. And the next thing you know, you got an envelope with all these prayers and thoughts from Grandma Faye, and it was really encouraging. Grandma Faye doesn't know anything about the, you know, the uh, two-source hypothesis when it comes to the Gospels, the fact that, you know, there are four Gospels, you know, what we were talking about earlier, mm-hmm. and, um, and, you know, what is their relationship and all of that. She didn't, she wouldn't know anything about that. She's passed on now, so she probably has a much better understanding of it than I could ever have. But, um, but at the time, you know, that's, she didn't know this, but she knows how to love. And so um, if I could love like her and, you know, check my intellect, then I want to love like her. Mm-hmm. Um, I, don't think the, I don't think I have to do one or the other, but I, I do strive to learn how to love more. And, um, 
because I think that's more consistent with the gospel than whether or not I have the right understanding of a particular Greek word or a particular theological concept. Yeah. So let's let's wrestle with that for just a, a few more minutes as we um, as we think about it, because you're not just uh, a professor. Uh, you're not just someone active in the church thinking about this for other people. You're a, a father, a, a parent. Um, as a as a couple, you and your wife are, um, you know, smart and educated people, and yet you have children, and they're growing up in a world um, they you have to navigate. When do you tell them about these things? Uh, how do you expose them to questions about texts that? Um, you know, might be disorienting for some people. Um, how do you have them engage in learning from a, a person who loves them deeply, like mm-hmm. a, a grandma fake type, type person, but may uh, may not always tell them things the way that you see right. it, right? And um, so, you know, I like the, the analogy of the grocery store, um, being that way instead of using the academic term deconstruction but how have you walked with your kids through um you know now uh, Elliot's in high school I believe right. um so and and from my understanding he's not oblivious to these things you no. know uh, from some limited conversations we've had um and I just think it's a it's a really intriguing question about how you in your specific and maybe a harder role as someone, you know, a harder role than most fathers have uh, to be a highly intellectual person and highly engaged in the life of the church. Like, mm-hmm. I think both of those things create a unique complexity for you. So um, I don't know, I, I don't want to limit you where you want to yeah. go with this, but but how have you wrestled with that as parents? Um, well, uh I don't know that we've wrestled with it. I think, I think what we did early on. One of the things that's that's always motivated me as in my whole since I became a Christian and you know, when I was sixteen has been the Bible. I love the Bible, um, uh, even the even the crazy parts that I can't quite get. Some of the mm-hmm. some of the parts of Proverbs where I'm just sitting going, now why is this? What is what's going on with this? Right. Um, I love the Bible and. Um, and, my, and, and one of the things that Shelley and I were able to do is in our love for the scriptures is to pass that along to the kids. And so the, um, you know, from very early on with uh, Paul and Samuel, we had a, the beginner's Bible. And we, you know, it was just an illustrated Bible, very simple. We read that thing through probably five times, you know, more or more um, as part of our readings. And it just sort of inculcated in them a... Uh, an understanding of the overarching story of God, the, the the beauty of the scriptures, and then just come back to that and share that love for the scriptures um, with them. Um, and then also giving them the space to wrestle with things themselves. So, you know, when our, um, uh, you know, uh, I, I'm not a scientist and I'm not, you know, uh, but I have certain things, I have certain thoughts about for instance, evolutionary theory, mm-hmm. and um, and I don't believe that the Book of Genesis deals with um, uh, creation in such a way that it really addresses the 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 questions being raised by evolution. I think they're they're working two very different 
uh, context. Mm -hmm. So we can get into that if you want. But the, but the basic gist of it is that um, I'm not a young earth creationist and I don't believe that the earth was created. Um, uh, I don't believe you have to believe that the earth was created in six literal days. Right. So, um, but, but our, when we were homeschooling our kids back in, the, in Michigan, Paul and Samuel in particular, they were part of a uh, homeschool consortium mm -hmm. where everybody did believe that. Right, and so right. my kids, yeah. you know, my kids, uh, I remember we had a, a minister who came and spoke to my kids and his favorite book of the Bible was Job. And he started talking about how it's the oldest book that, of, of, of scripture and how it is, uh, and, you know, and, and believed that it talked about dinosaurs. I don't believe nearly any of that. I like Job, but it's right, not right. the oldest book of the Bible. And, and it, I don't think it's talking about dinosaurs, but so my kids grew up with that, and then, but but at the same time, we chose a homeschool curriculum that instead of just saying no, there's only the science, you know, the current scientific views, or no, there's only the creationists. It actually tried to present both views, giving our kids access to, you know, different you know different sides, mm -hmm. and really giving them the context to, to wrestle with it. And then what we did was we created a. A space that was safe for them to wrestle with it so I've never told my kids they had to believe one thing or the other I mean other than that you should believe in Jesus um, but I've always given them the space to sort of figure out you know what things are so you know when we had a, um, at Pepperdine um, Paul and Samuel were I think 10 or 11 and we had a speaker who was a biologist a Christian biologist who gave a lecture about evolution that was um, that was uh, in favor of it, I, I brought the boys to that, and um, and and then afterwards had a great discussion about mm. it, and you know, and they wrestled with it, and I gave them the space to do that because at the end of the day, I figured you know I could be wrong about how the world was created, I could be wrong about um, these things, but the one thing I know for a fact is that Jesus has got Son, that He rose from the dead, that He is the He is our Savior. And that has been the thing where I've just, you know, been crystal clear with the boys. And so that and my love for scripture and then the idea that you can wrestle uh, with those things. Right. And uh, um, in my own in, in my own way of putting it is, you know, from eight to five, I wrestle with the scriptures. But when the whistle blows, I go back and I submit to them. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, when I'm done at the end of the day of being an academic and a scholar and trying to figure out, you know, why Paul would write this incredibly long sentence that, you know, doesn't seem to be as effective as what I would do if I were in his shoes and all these things, or, you know, why would he say this about what a woman can't or can't do? And, you know, and I wrestle with those things. But at the end of the day, when I'm, you know, when I'm done, I submit to the scriptures mm -hmm. and I submit to their message about Jesus and about God. And, 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 and then, you know, the next day the whistle blows and I'm back to work on it, you know, I'm back mm -hmm. to wrestling and, you know, but so I, I think the boys have that, my sons have that context where it's okay for them to wrestle with the scriptures. It's okay for them to think about things. And, um, and at the same time, they have a love for uh, the, the, the vision of God and the scriptures and, yeah. the, um, and the story that the scripture tells, which is true, regardless of whether you have an historical critical or an uh, plenary inspiration understanding of scripture. Yeah. Yeah, and I, uh, you know, one of the things that I love exploring with people just is how they then go about 
rebuilding or the constructive task of of after things have kind of come out and I think what you describe as as creating a safe space um, or and creating space for them to wrestle themselves but you're there with the certainty about Jesus's and the confidence in Jesus and um, that is often missing in some people's life. I'm sure you've encountered that with students in undergrad here at Pepperdine that come in uh, at first being kind of in love with the Bible. They, mm-hmm. they kind of are young earth, like it, it's, uh, science is totally wrong here and yeah. this is why. And, um, and then there, some holes are poked in that. Right. Um, and maybe in a good way, like I, I think in some ways what we've talked about with this, the experience overseas, like we want them to see the world in a different way. We want right. them to grow as people. And I believe God wants us to as well. Um, and so as those threads kind of come unraveled, uh, the sad part is when they don't have a system, a support right. system, an environment where they can then construct again. Right. And, uh, and so, you know, that... It's just neat to hear you talk about that. I mean, I'm expecting my my little girl in December. Uh, so my wife and I are are, uh, are starting the time of thinking about what is the home life that we want to be uh, like. How do we want to engage in church for us, especially um, ministry is kind of can be a dark chasm behind the the curtain of church leadership. If can be discouraging when people are upset about things that don't seem to matter, have ultimate right. matters. Um, and you know, I don't want to bring all of that home all the time to sour my daughter about church, you know, and I, I love just hearing about how you expose them, your sons to different intellectual things. And, but then you had this philosophy, you like expressed it so great and eight to five, I'm wrestling with these questions, but at the end of the day, Jesus is Lord, Lord, and I submit myself to the scriptures. And and he's Lord through the process of wrestling with it. I don't want to give the sense that, you know, from eight to five, I'm off, you know, partying wildly and all that, you know. I mean, what I mean, though, is that that, um, I think his lordship, I love Pepperdine's motto, that the truth has nothing to fear. Mm. Um, And I think Jesus' lordship has nothing to fear. God is not a God who's sitting back going, well, if they stop believing me, you know, I'm, I'm listening to an audio, uh, uh, um, uh, to an audible book um, by Neil Gaiman, American Gods, which I can't recommend because it's very explicit and I uh, should probably not be listening to it. But it's fascinating to me uh, about the fact that the, the, one of the main premises is that as people forget about gods, the gods lose their power, mm-hmm. their potency, and even, even can... Um, Disappear, and I think we live our, our our lives somehow thinking that our um, that if we if we doubt God or if we if we wrestle with God um, that that somehow causes God to be less true, and I think that's just putting ourselves way too much at the center of things. Mm. You know, I I um, God will be God whether we believe in Him or not. Mm-hmm. And and we shouldn't worry in our wrestling that we're somehow uh, compromising him or damaging him. That doesn't mean we shouldn't be reverent and we shouldn't seek his face always. But we but we're just not uh, we're not so powerful that we can cause God to disappear mm-hmm. because we question things. And I think that the Psalms teach us that God. In fact, the Psalms give us language. So here are the Psalms. 
They're inspired, and they give us language to say, Psalm 44, why are you sleeping, God? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, or Psalm 88, which is also another you know, psalm, which is you know, basically in God's face saying, What's, you know, how could you let these things happen? This is inspired language that God gives us to question him. Mm-hmm. And if he's big enough to inspire literature, scripture, to, to give us utterance, to, to tell him off effectively, um, then it seems like we should take that seriously as, as, as not, again, not as a call to, um, to move away from him, but to engage him mm-hmm. and, um, and to trust him. And, uh, and so, yeah, so, um, and I, I think that the, with my, with my sons, it's, it's, it's that, that I've tried to, that Charlie and I have tried to communicate is that we really, um, trust God, um, that, you know, we, we don't have all the answers. Mm -hmm. We don't need to have all the answers. We just trust them. Yeah. So I've so appreciated this time just to sit with you um, and kind of hear and listen, but also to be part of the conversation because I think uh, so much of what happens with um, our, our just lives, we, we go on and we don't take time to listen uh, to each other. And my hope with this podcast is that people will kind of reflect a little bit on the, the moments where they... Uh, changed and saw the world differently mm-hmm. and the people who kind of helped facilitate those modes and then um i love how you know being able to end the conversation talking a little bit about you and shelly's role in your son's life and that is how how do we not just have those happen to us but how are we intentional with helping other people creating environments mm-hmm. that are safe for um for the critical work of, of uh, thinking but also the constructive work of yeah. what's important um, and the trust in the Lordship of, of Jesus is, is a beautiful way to put it. Um, I thought just one final kind of couple questions would be fun uh, to pick your brain. Uh, one is, what's your biggest pet peeve as a New Testament scholar um, that pastors and preachers do in the pulpit? So this one, you know. Um, biggest pet peeve. Yeah, um, you you hear a lot of sermons, I'm sure, and you get to deliver some. But, um, you know, what's what's uh, kind of something that we we do that that drives you up a wall sometimes from an intellectual side, uh, you know, understanding that you know we're all people too. But, you know, um, when I was in Germany, I I, I um, started keeping a journal, and um, and uh, so I started writing down notes for sermons that I was listening to. Um, we were going to primarily to an English speaking church there. And, and so, and I, we had, they had different uh, ministers um, e- pretty much, you know, every time we went. And so I, I got notes and, and have kept doing that since I've been back. And so, um, you know, when I'm sitting at my church, I'm taking notes and, and off of what the ministers are saying. And, and um, I've thought a lot about, about, you know this as a New Testament professor, and frankly, where I'm at is that if a if a minister authentically engages the Scripture and does not make assumptions about what it says, or even worse, just quotes a verse but then doesn't deal with it, mm. I mean, those are things that really get on my nerves. I have a great deal of of charity because 
I want people to have charity with me that I could be wrong in my reading of scriptures. I could make mistakes. I could, you know, but the one thing I think is unforgivable is to, is to be lazy mm. um, and to not try and wrestle with scripture. So if you have a bad interpretation, but you have a good, uh, a good process by which you came by it, you know, I'm going to be much more, uh, I'll be much more patient with that than if you just mailed the thing in. Mm. Mm-hmm. Especially with regards to the scriptures, because they're inspired and they're alive, uh, as the Hebrews writer says, they're able to cut between um, our our soul and our spirit, our bone and our marrow, and um, and they expose us. They lay us open to God. And if a minister is preaching, and that minister doesn't wield the the the, the divine scalpel with the kind of care. That um, that the minister should that that's where I get frustrated. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I love that because I think too often we um, we want our the people that are speaking to um, you know agree with our position, and so to hear you just say I I just want them to do uh, spend time with the text and yeah. and really be thoughtful about how they're using it. I think of James where he says not many of us should be teachers, mm-hmm. right? Because um, we're going to be called to a higher account. And in some way, shape or form, uh, mystery of some kind, there's this, uh, I think it's Peter, uh, says, you know, you should speak as one speaks the very words of God. Mm-hmm. And that to me is just um, a little, it takes me back and makes me want to, pause a little bit yeah. before I get up and preach yeah. you know and because I, I don't want to come into it flippantly like um, like as if I can just do this immediately really quickly but at the same point I value almost more the responsibility in that in that space yeah. you know um, and so I appreciate your your thought there because I was I was just like imagining oh this could be an interesting one he might say like when they use this verse and they mean it this way, or, you know, I know some friends that are pretty frustrated with Jeremiah 31, I think it is. Um, a lot of people use that one. Uh, I know the plans I have for you, and that just gets me on my nerves, you know. Um, so it's interesting. Last question just would be, who, um, who would you recommend that we uh, read or think about uh, listening to? Maybe it's... Uh, you know, someone that I can have on the podcast as well, but it more so just for, for people as you say, if you're, if you're just, uh, maybe you or haven't done much academic work, who might you recommend to them to say, you know, this could be an interesting disorienting moment for you. Maybe a, a moment where you can go into the grocery store and have an experience that's different and change your, your view of the world. Well, um, Oh, there are a lot of good people I could recommend that you could have a podcast with. Um, uh, let me uh, one person that I um, that lives in Michigan has written a book, written a series, several books, but um, but he has a book on Greg Stevenson on um, uh, I think it's called the Slaughtered Lamb on the Book of Revelation. That's amazing. Um, and so if you're interested in Revelation, um, uh, he's that that book is really fascinating so I'd recommend that um, but the the first 
person that came to my mind, the first author that came to my mind that I would recommend is Robert Louis Wilkin. And I'd recommend one of two books. He has a, a book called um, the, um, the Christians as the Romans Saw Them. And so let's say that, you've, that one is interested in um, uh, sort of how we respond to the new atheists and to the critiques of um, sort of contemporary critiques of Christianity. Um, what, what Wilkin shows is that the intellectuals of the Roman world understood Christianity in a surprisingly um, thoughtful, careful, and accurate way and made salient um, criticisms of Christianity that force you to really think, wow, I mean, I read that book um, in preparation for a class and was uh, uh, jostled um, by how much it made me um, question. And what it does, though, the value of that of that is that um, when I pick up books by contemporary critics of Christianity, especially within the context of the New Atheist Movement, they don't understand Christianity. They don't understand the scriptures. They're playing in stereotypes. Mm-hmm. They, are, they are so ignorant of what they're trying to criticize that their criticisms don't make sense to me. If you're going to have uh, opponents, you want and you want to grow from that. You want your opponents to know about you. And the early Roman critics that Wilkin talks about, they knew about Christianity. Um, the other book that he wrote, um, and he wrote it um, several, a couple of decades later, and originally he was going to sort of say the you know, r- Christian response to what the mm-hmm. Romans said, but, and, and that's effectively, in a sense, what this book is, but he decided, uh, as best as I can understand, to not... Um, to not do that, but really to show that Christianity isn't accountable to what the Romans critiqued them for, that it has its own inner logic. And so what he did, this book is called The Spirit of Early Christian Thought, um, and it is uh, a a marvelous book where, um, where he, over several chapters, he introduces readers to the, the, the thinkers of the second through the um, seventh century, uh, from people like Justin Martyr to um, Maximus the Confessor. Um, uh, and that book has changed my life um, when he's talking. And, it, and he, he's, he's a, a, a devout Catholic who is um, very intellectually aware and alert and engaged. He's sort of you know, it, um, I'm not Roman Catholic, and I'm very comfortable in my own <laughs> yeah. Church of Christ tradition. But if I had a, a sort of role model in terms mm-hmm. of somebody who is devout in his faith and at the same time intellectually is just really going after God with his mind and trying to help other people do that, mm-hmm. it would be Wilkin in that book. Mm-hmm. And um, and the vision that he has of Christ and that he that he shows that the, the that writers like Cyril of Alexandria and Gregory Nazianzus and Origen and Augustine, the image that they had of Christ and the way they were motivated by Christ, the love they had for Christ, is astonishing. Mm-hmm. And it's it's intellectually deep, but it's also spiritually truly authentic. Hmm. That's fantastic. Well, thank you for recommending those. Uh, Wilkins' work, I don't think I've come across. Um, I think I actually own uh, 
the Stevenson's book. Yeah. book. Yeah. It's a great book. Um, and uh, have read a little bit of it. I need to dig in more. It, it's a different approach to Revelation than I was yeah. expecting. It's not a it's not a commentary. And what he does is he um, he's a good friend of mine. In fact, he just invited me to um, to uh, uh, contribute to a, a work on the theology of Marvel. He's very interested in pop culture. Yeah, we could talk about his book on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. But um, but he is a, a he's also a solid uh, biblical scholar, especially with respect to Revelation and and. What he does is he contextualizes Revelation in its in in the first century, in such a way that you understand it better, and and one would think well that would take away some of the mystery of Revelation, but in fact what it does is it makes it much more poignant in the message it has for Christians today. That's fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Ron, for spending the time. I'm uh, yeah, my thinking that we'll probably. Uh, have to have a podcast here soon on um, the inspiration of scripture uh, I, I I like that term versus trying to say are we going to argue about inerrancy and how to yes. view that but I, I think it would be neat to get a group of people um, to, to discuss how uh, how Christians in community in faith in trust in the lordship of yeah. Jesus submit themselves to this text um, yeah. And not, um, and I think it looks a little different than the, the buckets that have been put out there by contemporary Christianity. So that I'm sure will be one where I reach out to you again and see if we can work it out. I look forward to it. All right, thanks. Peace. Thanks for tuning in to Value Add. For more great conversations and insights, visit valueaddconversations.com.